Chapter Twenty of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Blow Wind, Swell, Billow, and Swim Bark. She reached home, as she had thought, before ten o'clock, her unexpected arrival occasioning the usual flurry of exclamation and question not to be suppressed even by the most self contained family with a fixed desire to let its members alone, and a firm tradition of not interfering in their private affairs. Judith had come home before her father, and now looked up from her game of checkers with wondering eyes. Sylvia explained that she was not sick, and that nothing had happened to break up or disturb the house party. I just felt like coming home, that's all, she said irritably, touched on the raw by the friendly loving eyes and voices about her. She was glad, at least, that her father was not home. That was one less to look at her. "'Well, get along to bed with you,' said her mother, in answer to her impatient explanation. "'And you children, keep still. Don't bother her.' Sylvia crept upstairs into the whiteness of her own slant-ceiling room, and, without lighting a lamp, sat down on the bed. Her knees shook under her. She made no move to take off her furs or hat. She felt no emotion only a leaden fatigue and lameness, as though she had been beaten. Her mother, coming in five minutes later with a lighted lamp and a cup of hot chocolate, made no comment at finding her still sitting, fully dressed in the dark. She set the lamp down, and with swift deftness slipped out hat-pins, unhooked furs, unbuttoned and unlaced and loosened, until Sylvia woke from her lethargy and quickly completed the process slipping on her nightgown and getting into bed. Not a word had been exchanged. Mrs. Marshall brought the cup of hot chocolate, and Sylvia drank it as though she were a little girl again. Her mother kissed her good night, drew the blankets a little more snugly over her, opened two windows wide, took away the lamp, and shut the door. Sylvia, warmed and fed by the chocolate, lay stretched at full length in the bed, breathing in the fresh air which rushed across her face from the windows, feeling herself in a white beatitude of safety and peace. Especially did she feel grateful to her mother. "'Isn't mother great?' she said to herself. Everything that had passed seemed like a confusing dream to her, so dreadful, so terrifying, that she was amazed to feel herself, in spite of it, overcome with drowsiness." Now the roles were reversed. It was her brain that was active, racing and shuddering from one frightening mental picture to another, while her body, young, sound, healthful, fell deeper and deeper into torpor, dragging the quivering mind down to healing depths of oblivion. The cold, pure air blew so strongly in her face that she closed her eyes. When she opened them again, the sun was shining. She started up nervously, still under the influence of a vivid dream. Strange. Then, as she blinked and rubbed her eyes, she saw her mother standing by the bed with a pale, composed face. "'It's nine o'clock, Sylvia,' she said, "'and Mr. Fisk is downstairs, asking to see you. He tells me that you and he are engaged to be married.' Sylvia was instantly wide awake. "'Oh, no! Oh, no!' she said passionately. No, we're not. I won't be. I won't see him. She looked about her wildly and added, I'll write him that. Just wait a minute. She sprang out of bed, 
caught up a pad of paper and wrote hastily it was all a mistake i don't care for you at all not a bit i hope i shall never have to speak to you again there she said thrusting it into her mother's hands she stood for a moment shivering in her thin nightgown in the icy draught and then jumped back into bed again her mother came back in a few moments closed the windows and opened the register there was not in her silence or in a line of her quiet presence the faintest hint of curiosity about sylvia's actions she had always maintained in theory and now at this crisis with characteristic firmness of purpose acted upon her theory that absolutely unforced confidence was the only kind worth having and that moreover unless some help was necessary it might be as well for the younger generation early to acquire the strengthening capacity to keep its own intimate experiences to the privacy of its own soul and learn to digest them and feed upon them without the dubiously peptonizing aid of blundering adult counsel sylvia watched her mother with wondering gratitude she wasn't going to ask she was going to let sylvia shut that ghastly recollection into the dark once for all she wasn't going by a look or a gesture to force her helplessly responsive child to give by words weight and substance to a black shapeless horror from which sylvia with a vivid impulse of sanity averted her eyes she got out of bed and put her arms around her mother's neck say mother you are great she said in an unsteady voice mrs marshall patted her on the back you'd better go and take your bath and have your breakfast she said calmly judith and lawrence have gone skating when sylvia tingling with the tonic shock of cold water and rough toweling and rosie in her old blue sailor suit came downstairs she found her mother frying pancakes for her in the kitchen blue with smoke from the hot fat she was touched almost shocked by this strange lapse from the tradition of self-help of the house and said with rough self-accusation my goodness the idea of your waiting on me she snatched away the handle of the frying-pan and turned the cakes deftly then on a sudden impulse she spoke to her mother standing by the sink i came back because i found i didn't like jerry fiske as much as i thought i did i found i didn't like him at all she said her eyes on the frying-pan at this announcement her mother's face showed pale and for an instant tremulous through the smoke she did not speak until sylvia lifted the cakes from the pan and piled them on a plate at this signal of departure into the dining-room she commented well i won't pretend that i'm not very glad sylvia flushed a little and looked towards her silently she had a partial momentary vision of what the past two months must have been to her mother the tears stood in her eyes say mother dear she said in a quavering voice that tried to be light why don't you eat some of these cakes to keep me company it's most ten you must have had breakfast three hours ago it'd be fun i can't begin to eat all these well i don't care if i do answered mrs marshall sylvia laughed at the turn of her phrase and went into the dining-room mrs marshall followed in a moment with a cup of hot chocolate and buttered toast sylvia pulled her down and kissed her you'd prescribe hot chocolate for anything from getting religion to a broken leg she said laughing 
Her voice shook, and her laugh ended in a half-sob. "'No, oh, no,' returned her mother quaintly. "'Sometimes hot milk is better. Here, where is my share of those cakes?' She helped herself, went around the table, and sat down. "'Cousin Parnelia was here this morning,' she went on. "'Poor old idiot. She was certain that Planchette would tell who it was that stole our chickens. I told her to go ahead, but Planchette wouldn't write. Cousin Parnelia laid it to the blighting atmosphere of skepticism of this house. Sylvia laughed again. Alone in the quiet house with her mother, refreshed by sleep, aroused by her bath, safe, sheltered, secure, she tried desperately not to think of the events of the day before. But in spite of herself, they came back to her in jagged flashes. Above all, the handsome blonde face darkened by passion. She shivered repeatedly. Her voice was quite beyond her control, and once or twice her hands trembled so that she laid down her knife and fork. She was silent and talkative by turns, a phenomenon of which Mrs. Marshall took no outward notice, although when the meal was finished she sent her daughter out into the piercing December air with a command to walk six miles before coming in. Sylvia recoiled at the prospect of solitude. "'Oh, I'd rather go and skate with Judy and Larry,' she cried. "'Well, if you skate hard enough,' her mother conceded. The day after her return, Sylvia had a long letter from Germaine Fisk, a letter half apologetic, half aggrieved, passionately incredulous of the seriousness of the break between them and wholly unreconciled to it. The upshot of his missive was that he was sorry if he had done anything to offend her, but might he be everlastingly confounded if he thought she had the slightest ground for complaint everything had been going on so swimmingly his father had taken the greatest notion to her had said the very evening she'd cut and run that queer way that if he married that rippingly pretty marshall girl he could have the house and estate at mercerton and enough to run it on and could practice as much or as little law as he pleased and go at once into politics and now she had gone and acted so what in the world was the matter with her weren't they engaged to be married couldn't an engaged man kiss his girl had he ever been anything but too polite for words to her before she had promised to marry him and what about that promise anyhow his father had picked out the prettiest little mare in the stables to give her when the engagement should be announced the colonel was as much at a loss as he to make her out if the trouble was that she didn't want to live in Mercerton, he was sure the colonel would fix it up for them to go direct to Washington, where, with his father's connection, she could imagine what an opening they'd have. And above all, he was crazy about her. He really was. He'd never had any idea what it was to be in love before. He hadn't slept a wink the night she'd gone away, just tossed on his bed and thought of her and longed to have her in his arms again. Sylvia suddenly tore the letter in two and cast it into the fire, breathing hard. In answer, she wrote, It makes me sick to think of you. She could not endure the idea of talking over the experience with anyone and struggled to keep it out of her mind, but her resolution to keep silence was broken by Mrs. Draper, who was informed, presumably by Germain himself, of the circumstances, and encountering Sylvia in the street, waited for no invitation to confidence by the girl, but pounced upon her with laughing reproach and insidiously friendly ridicule. 
Sylvia, helpless before the graceful assurance of her friend, heard that she was a silly little unawakened schoolgirl who was throwing away a brilliantly happy and successful life for the queerest and funniest of ignorant notions. What did you expose, you baby? You wouldn't have him marry you unless he was in love with you, would you? Why do you suppose a man wants to marry a woman? Did you suppose that men in love carry their sweethearts around wrapped in cotton wool? You're a woman now. You ought to welcome life, rich, full-blooded life, not take this chilly, suspicious attitude toward it. Why, Sylvia, I thought you were a big, splendid, vital, fearless, modern girl, and here you are acting like a little, thin-blooded New England old maid. How can you blame Jerry? He was engaged to you. What do you think marriage is? Oh, Sylvia, just think what your life would be in Washington with your beauty and charm. This dexterously aimed attack penetrated Sylvia's armor at a dozen joints. She winced visibly and hung her head, considering profoundly. She found that she had nothing to oppose to the other's arguments. Mrs. Draper walked beside her in a silence as dexterous as her exhortation. Her hand affectionately thrust through Sylvia's arm. Finally, Sylvia's ponderings continuing so long that they were approaching the Marshall House, in sight of which she had no mind to appear, she gave Sylvia's arm a little pat and stood still. She said cheerfully, in a tone which seemed to minimize the whole affair into the smallest of passing incidents, "'No, you queer darling, don't stand so in your own light. A word would bring Jerry back to you now, but I won't say it will always.' I don't suppose you've ever considered, in your young selfishness, how cruelly you have hurt his feelings. He was awfully sore when I saw him, and Eleanor Hubert is right on the spot with Mama Hubert in the background to push. Sylvia broke her silence to say, in a low tone, blushing scarlet, He was horrid. Mrs. Draper dropped her light tone and said earnestly, Dear little ignorant Sylvia, you don't realize life when you see it. That's the way men are, all men. And there's no use thinking it horrid unless you're going into a convent. It's not so bad, either, once you get the hang of managing it. It's a hold on them. It's a force, like any other force of nature, that you can either rebel against or turn your account and make serviceable. If you'll only accept it and not try to quarrel with water, for running downhill. As long as she herself isn't carried away by it, it's a weapon in the hand of a clever woman. Only the stupid women get hurt by it, the silly ones who can't keep their heads. And after all, my dear, it is a force of nature, and you're too intelligent not to know that there's no use fighting against that. It's just idiotic and puritanic to revolt from it, and doesn't do any good besides. She looked keenly into Sylvia's downcast, troubled face, and judged it a propitious moment for leaving her. "'Good-bye, darling,' she said, with a final pat on the shoulder. Sylvia walked slowly into the house, her heart like lead. Her food had no savor to her. She did not know what she was eating, nor what her mother, the only one at home for lunch, was saying to her. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Marshall said very little— even less than was her custom. Her face had the look of terrible, patient endurance it had worn during the time when Lawrence had had pneumonia, and his life had hung in the balance for two days. 
but she went quietly about her usual household tasks. After the meal was over, Sylvia continued to sit alone at the table, staring palely down at the tablecloth, her mind full of Mrs. Draper's illuminating comments on life, which had gone through her entire system like a dexterously administered drug. And yet that ingenious lady would have been surprised to know how entirely her attack had failed in the one point which seemed to her important, the possibility of a reconciliation between Sylvia and Germain. The girl was deeply under the impression made by the philosophy of the older woman. She did not for the moment dream of denying its truth, but she stood granite in a perfectly illogical denial of its implications in her own case. She did not consciously revolt against the suggestion that she renew her relations to Jerry Fisk, because with a united action of all her faculties she refused utterly to consider it for an instant. She would no more have been persuaded to see Jerry again by a consideration of the material advantages to be gained than she could have been persuaded to throw herself down from the housetop. That much was settled, not by any coherent effort of her brain, but by a coordination of every instinct in her, by the action of her whole being, by what her life had made her. But that certainty brought her small comfort in the blackness of the hour. What hideous world was this in which she had walked unawares until now? Mrs. Draper's jaunty, bright acceptance of it affected her to moral nausea. All the well-chosen words of her sophisticated friend were embedded in the tissue of her brain like grains of sand in an eyeball. She could not see for very pain. And yet her inward vision was lurid with the beginning of understanding of the meaning of those words, lighted up as they were by her experience of the day before, now swollen in her distraught mind to the proportions of a nightmare. It's a weapon in the hand of a clever woman. It's not so bad once you get the hang of managing it. It's a hold on men. Sylvia turned whiter and whiter at the glimpse she had had of what was meant by Mrs. Draper's lightly evasive it, a comprehension of which all her advanced reading and study had left her mind as blankly ignorant as a little child's. Now it was vain to try to shut her thoughts away from Germain. She lived over and over the scene with him. She endured with desperate passivity the recollection of his burning lips on her bosom, his fingers pressing into her side. Why not, if every man was like that as soon as he dared? Why not, if that was all that men wanted of women? Why not, if that was the sole ghastly reality which underlay the pretty smooth surface of life? And beyond this bleak prospect, which filled her with dreary horror, there rose glimpsed vistas which sent the shamed blood up to her face in a flood. If every man was like that, why, so were the men she had known and loved and trusted. Old Reinhardt, who seemed so simple, what had been his thoughts when he used years ago to take her on his knee? What were his thoughts now when he bent over her to correct her mistakes on the piano? The expression of Colonel Fisk's eyes, as he had complimented her, brought her to her feet with a shudder, but Colonel Fisk was an old, old man, as old as Professor Kennedy. Why, perhaps Professor Kennedy, perhaps. She flung out her arms, perhaps her father. 
she ran to the piano as to a refuge meaning to drown out these maddening speculations which were by this time tinctured with insanity but the first chords she struck jarred on her ear like a discordant scream she turned away and stood looking at the door with a darkening face one hand at her temple her mother darning stockings by the window suddenly laid down her work and said sylvia how would you like to walk with me over to the martins to see if they have any eggs our hens have absolutely gone back on us sylvia did not welcome this idea at all feeling as overwhelming an aversion to companionship as to solitude but she could think of no excuse and in an ungracious silence put on her wraps and joined her mother ready on the porch the basket in her mittened hand mrs marshall's pace was always swift and on that crisp cold sunny day with the wind sweeping free over the great open spaces of the plain about them she walked even more rapidly than usual not a word was spoken sylvia quite as tall as her mother now and as vigorous stepped beside her not noticing their pace nor the tingling of the swift blood in her feet and hands her fresh young face was set in desolate bitterness the martin's house was about six miles from the marshall's it was reached the eggs procured and the return begun still not a word had been exchanged between the two women mrs marshall would have been easily capable under the most ordinary circumstances of this long self-contained silence but it had worked upon sylvia like a sojourn in the dim recesses of a church she felt moved stirred shaken but it was not until the brief winter sun was beginning to set red across the open reaches of field and meadow that her poisoned heart overflowed oh mother she exclaimed in an unhappy tone and said no more she knew no words to phrase what was in her mind yes dear said her mother gently she looked at her daughter anxiously expectantly with a passion of yearning in her eyes but she said no more than those two words there was a silence sylvia was struggling for expression they continued to walk swiftly through the cold ruddy sunset air the hard frozen road ringing beneath their rapid advance sylvia clasped her hands together hard in her muff she felt that something in her heart was dying was suffocating for lack of air and yet that it would die if she brought it to light she could find no words at all to ask for help agonizing in a shy reticence impossible for an adult to conceive finally beginning at random very hurriedly looking away she brought out faltering mother is it true that all men are that when a girl marries she must expect to aren't there any men who she stopped burying her burning face in her muff her words her tone the quaver of desperate sincerity in her accent brought her mother up short she stopped abruptly and faced the girl sylvia look at me she said in a commanding voice which rang loud in the frosty silences about them sylvia started and looked into her mother's face it was moved so darkly and so deeply from its usual serene composure that she would have recoiled in fear had she not been seized upon and held motionless by the other's compelling eyes sylvia said her mother in a strong clear voice acutely contrasted to sylvia's muffled tones sylvia it's a lie that men are nothing but sensual 
there's nothing in marriage that a good girl honestly in love with a good man need fear but but began sylvia startled out of her shyness her mother cut her short anything that's felt by decent men in love is felt just as truly though maybe not always so strongly by women in love and if a woman doesn't feel that answer in her heart to what he feels why he's no mate for her anything's better for her than going on and sylvia you mustn't get the wrong idea sensual feeling isn't bad in itself it's in the world because we have bodies as well as minds it's like the root of a plant but it oughtn't to be a very big part of the plant and it must be the root of the woman's feeling as well as the man's or everything's all wrong but how can you tell burst out sylvia you can tell by the way you feel if you don't lie to yourself or let things like money or social position count if an honest girl shrinks from a man instinctively there's something not right sensuality is too big a part of what the man feels for her and look here sylvia that's not always the man's fault women don't realize as they ought how base it is to try to attract men by their bodies she made her position clear with relentless precision when they wear very low-necked dresses for instance at this chance thrust a wave of scarlet burst up suddenly over sylvia's face but she could not withdraw her eyes from her mother's searching honest gaze which even more than her words spoke to the girl's soul the strong grave voice went on unhesitatingly for once in her life mrs marshall was speaking out she was like one who welcomes the opportunity to make a confession of faith there's no healthy life possible without some sensual feeling between the husband and wife but there's nothing in the world more awful than married life when it's the only common ground sylvia gazed with wide eyes at the older woman's face ardent compelling inspired feeling too deeply to realize it wholly the vital and momentous character of the moment she seemed to see nothing to be aware of nothing but her mother's heroic eyes of truth but the whole scene was printed on her mind for all her life the hard brown road they stood on the grayed old rail fence back of mrs marshall a field of brown stubble a distant grove of beech trees and beyond and around them the immense sweeping circle of the horizon the very breath of the pure scentless winter air was to come back to her nostrils in after years sylvia her mother went on it is one of the responsibilities of men and women to help each other to meet on a high plane and not on a low one and on the whole health's the rule of the world on the whole that's the way the larger number of husbands and wives imperfect as they are do live together family life wouldn't be possible a day if they didn't like a strong and beneficent magician she built up again and illuminated sylvia's black and shattered world your father is just as pure a man as i am a woman and i would be ashamed to look any child of mine in the face if he were not you know no men who are not decent except two and those you did not meet in your parents home for the first time she moved from her commanding attitude of prophetic dignity she came closer to sylvia but although she looked at her with a sudden sweetness which affected sylvia like a caress 
she but made one more impersonal statement. Sylvia, dear, don't let anything make you believe that there are not as many decent men in the world as women, and they are just as decent. Life isn't worth living unless you know that, and it's true. Apparently, she had said all she had to say, for she now kissed Sylvia gently and began again to walk forward. The sun had completely set, and the piled-up clouds on the horizon flamed and blazed. Sylvia stood still, looking at them fixedly. The great shining glory seemed reflected from her heart and cast its light upon a regenerated world, a world which she seemed to see for the first time. Strange, in that moment of intensely personal life, how her memory was suddenly flooded with impersonal impressions of childhood, little regarded at the time and long since forgotten, but now recurring to her with the authentic and incontrovertible brilliance which only first-hand experiences in life can bring with them. All those families of her public school mates, the plain, ugly homes in and out of which she had come and gone, with eyes apparently oblivious of all but childish interest, but really recording life facts which now in her hour of need stretched under her feet like a solid pathway across an oozing marsh. All those men and women whom she had seen in a thousand unpremeditated acts, whose tired-faced, kind-eyed, unlettered fathers and mothers were not breathing poisoned air, were not harboring in their simple lives a ghastly devouring wild beast she recalled with a great indrawn breath all the farmer neighbors parents working together for the children the people she knew so well from long observation of their lives whose mediocre struggling existence had filled her with scornful pity but whom now she recalled with a great gratitude for the explicitness of the revelations made by their untutored plainness for all she could ever know, the Drapers and the Fisks and the others of their world might be anything, under the discreet reticence of their sophistication, but they did not make up all the world. She knew, from having breathed it herself, the wind of health which blew about those other lives, bare and open to the view. As less artless lives were not, there was some other answer to the riddle beside Mrs. Draper's. Sylvia was only eighteen years old, and had the childish immaturity of her age, but her life had been so ordered that she was not, even at eighteen, entirely in the helpless position of a child who must depend on the word of others. She had accumulated, unknown to herself, quite apart from polished pebbles of book information, a small treasury of living seeds of real knowledge of life, taken in at first hand, knowledge of which no one could deprive her. The realization of this was a steadying ballast which righted the wildly rolling keel under her feet. She held up her head bravely against the first onslaught of the storm. She set her hand to the rudder. Perceiving that her mother had passed on ahead of her, she sprang forward in a run. She ran like a schoolboy, like a deer, like a man from whose limbs heavy shackles have been struck off. She felt so suddenly lightened of a great heaviness that she could have clapped her hands over her head and bounded into the air. She was, after all, but eighteen years old, and three years before had been a child. She came up to her mother with a rush, 
radiating life. Mrs. Marshall looked at the glowing face and her own eyes, dry till then, filled with the tears so rare in her self-controlled life. She put out her hand, took Sylvia's, and they sped along through the quick-gathering dusk, hand in hand, like sisters. Judith and Lawrence had reached home before them, and the low brown house gleamed a cheerful welcome to them from shining windows. For the first time in her life, Sylvia did not take for granted her home with all that meant. For an instant, it looked strangely sweet to her. She had a passing glimpse, soon afterwards lost in other impressions, of how, in after years, she would look back on the roof which had sheltered and guarded her youth. She lay awake that night, a long time, staring up into the cold blackness, her mind very active and restless in the intense stillness about her. She thought confusedly but intensely of many things, the months behind her, of Jerry, of Mrs. Draper, of her yellow dress, of her mother, of herself. In the lucidity of those silent hours of wakefulness, she experienced for a time the piercing, regenerating thrust of self-knowledge. For a moment, the full-beating pulses of her youth slackened, and between their throbs there penetrated to her perplexed young heart the rarest of human emotions, a sincere humility. If she had not burned the yellow dress at Mercerton, she would have arisen and burned it that night. During the rest of the Christmas vacation, she avoided being alone. She and Judith and Lawrence skated a great deal, and Sylvia learned at last to cut the grapevine pattern on the ice. She also mastered the first movement of the sonata pathetique, so that old Reinhardt was almost satisfied. The day after the university opened for the winter term, the Huberts announced the engagement of their daughter Eleanor to Germain Fiske, Jr., the brilliant son of that distinguished warrior and statesman, Colonel Germain Fiske. Sylvia read the announcement in the society column of the La Chance Morning Herald, with an enigmatic expression on her face, and betaking herself to the skating pond, cut grapevines with greater assiduity than ever, and with a degree of taciturnity, surprising in a person usually so talkative, that she had taken the first step away from the devouring egotism of childhood, was proved by the fact that at least part of the time this vigorous young creature swooping about the icy pond like a swallow, was thinking pityingly of Eleanor Hubert's sweet face. End of chapter 20